Let's begin by asking for God's blessing. Our gracious God and our Father, we seek your face again, uh, knowing that we can understand and believe nothing without your help, knowing that we need not only your word, but also the work of your spirit to enlighten our eyes and to uh, take away the darkness of our minds and the dullness of our ears. Bless us now so that we may understand and believe and obey your word and receive its promises and its warnings and its comfort by faith. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to be looking this afternoon at uh, Job chapters 22, 23, and 24. And I want to read, first of all, from uh, chapter 22, part of that chapter. We'll read the first 11 verses, and then we'll uh, read also verses 1 to 12 of chapter 24. So beginning with chapter 22, verses 1 to 11, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God? though he who is wise may be profitable to himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? Is it because of your fear of him that he corrects you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? For you have taken pledges from your brother for no reason and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have not given the weary water to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. But the mighty man possessed the land, and the honorable man dwelt in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. Therefore snares are all around you, and sudden fear troubles you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and an abundance of waters covers you. And then going Over to chapter 24, we'll read the first 12 verses there, and this is part of Job's response to Aliphaz. Since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know him see not his days? Some remove landmarks, they seize flocks violently and feed on them, they drive away the donkey of the fatherless, they take the widow's ox as a pledge. They push the needy off the road. All the poor of the land are forced to hide. Indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, they go out to their work searching for food. The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. They gather their fodder in the field and glean in the vineyard of the wicked. They spend the night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the showers of the mountains and huddle around the rock for want of shelter. Some snatch the fatherless from the breast and take a pledge from the poor. They cause the poor to go naked without clothing, and they take away the sheaves from the hungry. They press out oil within their walls and tread wine presses, yet suffer thirst. The dying groan in the city and the souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not charge them with wrong. So what we have here is the first interchange an interchange between Eliphaz and Job in the third round of speeches between Job and his friends. 
But this round of speeches is different from the other two rounds of speeches, and it's different because though Eliphaz has a speech of relatively normal length, Bildad's speech in this round, which you'll find in chapter 25, is very short, only a few verses long, and Zophar has no speech at all. It's during this round of speeches, especially after the last speech of Eliphaz, that the other two friends of Job conclude that it is no use really to argue with Job any longer, and they give up their uh, attempts to persuade him that he has sinned. So let's begin by uh, looking at Eliphaz's speech in, uh, verse, in chapters in chapter 22. Now I think uh, the first uh, paragraph, basically, in this section is verses 2 to 5. And here I think the main point that Eliphaz is making is that God is correcting Job because his wickedness is great. But he begins by saying in verses 2 and 3 that God does not profit from man's righteousness. Is it any, or or can a man be profitable to God? And then again in verse 3, is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? And I think Eliphaz intends this as a warning to Job. He's he's saying to Job, I think you should be careful about claiming righteousness. Because even if it's true that you are righteous uh, and you have not already erred, you may think, you may begin to err by thinking that your righteousness benefits God in some way, that somehow your righteousness is profitable to God. Perhaps even you will begin to think that God owes you something for your righteousness? Is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? That is, is God going to uh, profit from what you do in the way of righteousness? And of course, this is uh, scriptural truth. We are unprofitable servants, even when we have done all that is our duty to do. Eliphaz makes a legitimate point here. And we may even say this is a legitimate warning to Job because uh, ultimately I think Job did fall into the error of at least justifying himself before God and and thinking that therefore it was uh, somewhat unfair for God to afflict him as he had done. But in verses 4 and 5, Eliphaz comes then to the main point here. He says, is it because of your fear of him that he corrects you and enters into judgment with you? So you claim to be righteous, he says. Well, does that mean then that he is afflicting you and troubling you because of your righteousness? And he means that as a rhetorical question, and the obvious answer to that is no. God does not correct Job because of his fear of him. Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? What's very interesting, though, about that question of verse 4 is that in a certain sense, though you have to be careful with the language you would use in this connection, 
It was because of Job's righteousness that God was afflicting him. It was God who said to Satan, have you seen my righteous servant Job? And it was uh, God then who gave to Satan permission to afflict Job and to take away everything that he had. But Eliphaz very obviously believes that Job has sinned. And in verses 6 and following, he makes his charge of sin very explicit. Basically, in verses 6 to 11, he says to Job, not only have you sinned, but I know what your sin is. You have oppressed the poor. And all the questions or all the points that uh, uh, Eliphaz makes in verses 6 and following are really addressed to that specific accusation. You have uh, oppressed the poor. So in answer to his own question, is not your wickedness great? He says, you have taken pledges from your brother for no reason and stripped the naked of their clothing. I think that's meant to be one charge, basically. Remember that in Deuteronomy chapter 24, God forbade his people to take pledges from the widow and to reserve the poor's garment, which was given to them in a pledge, overnight. And so he's saying, you have not only taken pledges from the poor, when you probably ought not to have, but you've taken their garments away and you've kept them too long. You've stripped the naked of their clothing. So that's one charge. You have not given the weary water to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. You've not fed those who are in need, he says. And we think immediately, of course, of our Lord's charge to the wicked in the parable of the sheep and the goats, when he said, when I was thirsty, you gave me no water to drink. When I was hungry, you you did not feed me. And they say, how is that? possible, Lord. And he says, when you did not do it to one of these who are mine. This is what uh, Eliphaz is saying to Job. You've deprived the poor of the bread and the water, which you owe to them as one who has the means to supply their needs. Now in verse 8, I think, he's um, not charging Job directly, but rather implying that Job has been responsible in the behavior of others. He says, The mighty man possessed the land, and the honorable man dwelt in it. And what he means, I think, here is that this mighty man has possessed the land of the poor and has occupied that land as his own, but not that Job himself has done it, rather that Job has treated these mighty men, and these honorable men, as the New King James has it, with favoritism, which has allowed them to do it. Job was an elder who sat in the gate of the city, and it would have been possible for him, therefore, to pass judgment in certain matters. And Eliphaz is perhaps suggesting that he abused his power, maybe even accepted bribes from the mighty in order to dispossess the poor. He supported, then, the mighty man in his in unjust and wicked behavior. And the reason I say that is especially because that word honorable is, I think, a very poor translation of the Hebrew here in the New King James. 
The word seems to me to mean, anyway, one who has been favored or unjustly favored, one who has been shown favoritism, and the man who has been shown favoritism dwells in the land of the poor. And thus also, verse 9, you have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. This is what Job has been responsible for then. Job has done all these things. He has been responsible for oppression of the poor. And it's because of this, then, that the judgment of God has come on him. Verses 10 and 11. Therefore snares are all around you, and sudden fear troubles you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and an abundance of waters covers you. So that's his basic charge and his explanation for the troubles that have come on Job. Now in verses 12 to 14, I think he makes another different kind of accusation against Job. And here in these verses, he talks about the transcendence of God. Is not God in the height of heaven? And see the highest stars, how lofty they are. He says, the stars are very high, but God is above them all. God is in the height of heaven. God is transcendent. And he says to Job, and what you say with regard to that transcendence of God is, what does he know? He's too far removed to judge through the deep darkness. He cannot see. He walks above the circle of the heavens. So Eliphaz says, you take the doctrine of the transcendence of God and you misapply it and you say, well, God is so great, so highly exalted that he will not see me. And that means that I can do as I please. Now, wicked men do those kinds of things. Of course, say those kinds of things. And Eliphaz and Job both knew that. But Eliphaz is here accusing Job directly of abusing the doctrine of the transcendence of God. Eliphaz would say, he doesn't say it explicitly here, but it's certainly implied, because God is in the height of heaven, he sees Because he walks above the circle of the earth, he knows everything that you do, but you don't acknowledge it. Then in verses 15 and 16, will you keep to the old way which wicked men have trod who were cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away by flood? That is, now that you know what this transcendence of God really means, Are you going to stick to that way which you have been following, which wicked men before you have followed, and they have been swept down, swept away by the flood of God's anger? You better be careful. You may be too. Now I think here that it's the New King James that has, or or the King James Version that has a little bit different translation yeah, the, new, the King James says, have you marked the old way which wicked men have trodden? And what he means there is kind of the same thing, but have you seen, he's saying to Job, or have you observed the old way which wicked men have trodden who were cut down? So not have uh, you been walking on it, and are you going to continue walking on it, as the new King James has, but... Have you observed what God does to these wicked men? And there may even be a reference then at the end of verse 16 to the flood of Noah's day. 
whose foundations were swept away by a flood. So these wicked men, Eliphaz says, came under the judgment of God. Are you going to walk in that way and be swept away with them? Now verses 17 and 18 are kind of difficult. They said to God, depart from us. What can the Almighty do to them? And the Septuagint there has, what can the Almighty do to us? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. If you recall, Job said something very like this in his last speech. If you go back to chapter 21, verses 14 and following, you can see that Job had actually said this. Yet they say to God, Job said there, depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? Indeed, their prosperity is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. So he's very clearly making references to things that Job has said before. And it may be that he intends here to quote Job, actually, and to say, this is what you said. They said to God, depart from us. What can the Almighty do to them? That was your own words about them. What can the Almighty do to them? He filled their houses with good things. And at the same time, you said, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. So it's possible then that Job is, or Eliphaz is quoting Job's words there. Or it's possible that Eliphaz is, is referring to or using Job's word, words for himself. These wicked men whose foundations were swept away by a flood are the men of whom you said, they said to God, depart from us. And I agree with you, that's what they said. What can the Almighty do to us? Yet you say, then, he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. So whatever it is, he's, he's taking Job's words and he's turning them back on Job himself. Then in verses 19 and 20, he goes back to verse 16, I think. The righteous see, that is, they see the judgment that God brings on the wicked when he sweeps them away, and they are glad, and the innocent laugh at them, saying, surely our adversaries are cut down, and the fire consumes their remnant. So if only you were righteous, Job, you would see how the wicked were being cut down by the judgment of God. But instead you are in danger of being cut down yourself. Now in verses 21 to the end of the chapter then, Eliphaz calls Job to repentance. And he begins in verses 21 to 23 by expressing this idea of repentance in three different ways. Acquaint yourself with him and be at peace. That is, know God, know how he deals with the wicked, know about him what I have just been telling you about him, and make your peace with him by confessing your sins. Then the second thing he says is receive, please, instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. That is, receive the word of God, 
probably Eliphaz means receive the word of God as it's been coming to you through us, your friends. Lay it up in your heart, that is, take it to heart, listen to it, and be instructed by it. And then finally, he says in verse 23, return to the Almighty. So it's a very clear call to repentance. And with it, he speaks some promises. Good will come to you, verse 21. And 23, you will be built up. You will remove iniquity far from your tents. So this is what repentance will do. And then he makes even more specific promises in verses 24 to 30. Then you will lay your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. And I think what he's saying there is simply this. The gold that belongs to you here in the world will be uh, disregarded by you. You won't care about it anymore. You'll let it lay in the dust because the Almighty himself will be your gold. He will be so precious to you that you will disregard all earthly gold. A very beautiful promise, in fact, and not an illegitimate promise either. You will have your delight in the Almighty, verse 26. You will lift up your face to God, that is, you will stand face to face with him. You will uh, see his face shining upon you. You will deal with him as with a friend, just as Moses uh, stood face to face with God when he was on Mount Sinai. You will make your prayer to him. He will hear you, and you will pay your vows. That is, you will pay your vows of thanksgiving for the answers to your prayers. You will declare a thing, and it will be established for you. That is, your purposes, your counsels will be fulfilled. Light will shine on your ways. These are all promises that are easy to understand and, and legitimate promises, I think. Verses 29 and 30, however, are somewhat difficult. And translators have done different things with these verses. I'll let you look them up in the, in the different uh, translations we're going to go with what the New King James has here, except for the insertion of that word you in the first line of verse 29. The New King James has, when they cast you down and you say exaltation will come, then he will save the humble person. I think we should probably read, when they cast down and you say exaltation will come, then he will save the humble person. And I think the you doesn't belong there because I think this goes with verse 30. And Eliphaz is saying, when the wicked cast someone down, you will say exaltation will come. That is, you will pray for them. You will wish them well. You will bless them with lifting up or exaltation from God. And God will answer you. God will save the humble person. He will even deliver the one who is not innocent. He'll forgive the sins of someone for whom you pray. Yes, he will be delivered by the purity of your hands. It's very striking that this is exactly what happened at the end of the book when God said to Eliphaz and his friends, have Job pray for you so that I may forgive your sins. 
So Eliphaz has this specific charge of sin. You've oppressed the poor, the widows and the fatherless, and so on. And you're in danger of being destroyed with the wicked. And you should repent, return to the Almighty. And then he adds all these beautiful promises to his call to repentance. And this is a call to repentance, I think, that a minister could very well use in a sermon when he wants to bring the call of the gospel to the congregation and um, urge them to repent of sin. I don't see anything unbiblical in these promises or in these calls to repentance that Eliphaz makes here. The problem is, of course, that it's not applicable to Job. Job has not sinned. And especially, he's not oppressed the poor, as Eliphaz has now specifically charged him. That brings us then to Job's answer in chapters 23 and 24. Now, there's a difference between these two chapters. In the first chapter, chapter 23, Job is very personal again. He talks very much about himself. But in chapter 24, he's much less personal. He talks instead about the wicked and what happens to the wicked. So the first part is is Job pouring out his own desires, his own complaint again. And then chapter 24 is more objective about the wicked and what happens to the wicked. The basic idea in chapter 23 is again that Job wants to present his case to God. He he talks about the bitterness of his soul first. Even today, my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. His his personal grief and trouble has not been lessened by the comfort of his friends. He's not come to a better understanding of God's ways. He's not been uh, satisfied in any way with all his own conversation or the conversation of his friends, nothing has happened to change him from those first feelings that he had expressed already in chapter 3 when he cursed the day of his death. He's still feeling exactly the same way. In chapter 21, I think he had suppressed those feelings somewhat, trying to speak more objectively to his friends, but those feelings are still there, and here they come pouring out again. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. See, he wants to present his case. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. And notice how hopefully he speaks then in verses 5 to 7. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. So I'd be able to take in what the Lord says and responds to me. And I'm sure he would not contend with me in his great power. Remember Job's fear of the power of God simply overwhelming him if he presented his case. 
But he says, no, that's not true. He would take note of me. There the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. So Job speaks quite hopefully about what would happen if he were allowed to present his case to God. But then he starts to think a bit about this, and he says, look, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. He goes back and forth. He goes right and left. He goes north and south and east and west. And he can't find God. God is there and God is working. Verse 9, he's working on the left hand. But I can't behold him. I, I can't find him to bring my case to him. This is part of that the explanation then of verse 3, oh, that I knew where I might find him. I can't find him. That's his problem. Nevertheless, here he becomes a little more hopeful again. He knows the way I take. Verse 10, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. And here he's saying, if only I could present my case, I know that God would vindicate me. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. He will know that my foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. So he says, God will see this. If only I can come into his presence and if only I can present my case to him. But he is unique. There is no one like him in heaven or on earth. And who can make him change? That is, if I actually did come into his presence and presented my case before him, how could I persuade him to change his ways with regard to me? Whatever his soul desires, that he does. He performs what is appointed for me without any input from me is the implication And many such things are with him. This is not just the way he deals with me, but this is the way he works in many different situations. Therefore, and here you see an almost complete reversal from the beginning of the chapter, therefore I am terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I am afraid of him. For God made my heart weak, and the Almighty terrifies me because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness. That is, he did not prevent me from coming into this situation of great darkness, and he did not hide deep darkness from my face. So he starts out quite hopefully and ends again in despair. Even if I could come into the presence of God, I could not change him. I would be terrified of him. Chapter 24, then, as I said, this is much less personal. And what Job does here is he talks about the wicked. But you should take particular note of the fact that as he talks about the wicked, he talks about how the wicked have oppressed the poor. So he picks up on that charge which Eliphaz has made against him 
And he says, let's look at wicked men who have actually oppressed the poor. And let's see what happened to them. That's the argument of this chapter. And the answer which he gives to the question, what has happened to them, is God does not charge them with wrong. Verse 12. So what he's saying is, you've just been saying God judges the wicked who oppress the poor. Well, let's look at some examples of wicked men who oppress the poor and what God did to them. And we will see that God did not even charge them with wrong. Well, why should it be different with me? If I have oppressed the poor, why should God charge me with wrong? That's Job's basic argument here. So he says, begins in verse 1 of chapter 24, Since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know him see not his days? Why do those who know him best, the righteous, who know God best, not see him executing his judgment? His times are not hidden from him. He knows when judgment is due. Why then do the righteous not see him executing that judgment. And then he illustrates that point in what is following. He talks about what the wicked do to the poor. Some remove landmarks. It's something forbidden in the law of Moses. They seek flocks violently, feed on them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox as a pledge. They push the needy off the road. All the poor of the land are forced to hide. So they treat the poor abominably. And then in verses 5 to 8, the results of this treatment for the poor So this is now talking about the poor themselves. Indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, they go out to their work searching for food. The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. The rich and mighty have pushed them off their land. They don't have any land to harvest anymore, can't take any crops for themselves. And so they're forced to go out into the wilderness and gather whatever food they can find there in the wilderness for themselves and their children. They gather there, that is the mighty man's fodder, in the field. So they are working in the fields of the rich, but they're not allowed to eat of those fields. They glean in the vineyard of the wicked, and the gleanings go to the wicked man. They spend the night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the showers of the mountains and huddle around the rock for want of shelter. It's a miserable picture of the results of this oppression that the wicked do against the poor. Then further um, description of how these wicked men treat the poor in verses 9 and 10. Some snatch the fatherless from the breast and take a pledge from the poor. They cause the poor to go naked without clothing and they take away the sheaves from the hungry. And in verses 11 and 12, then the results of this for these poor, they press out oil within their walls, within the walls of these rich oppressors. 
They tread the wine presses, yet suffer thirst. They're not allowed to drink, even of the wine that they're pressing out. The dying groan in the city, and the souls of the wounded cry out. And what happens? Yet God does not charge them, that is, these wicked oppressors, with wrong. That's the key point here. God does not charge them with wrong. In spite of all the wickedness that they have done, God does nothing. Then in verses 13 to 17, he describes these wicked men further, but now in a more general way, I think. He describes them as as men who hate the light and do deeds, wicked deeds, in darkness. Notice the strong emphasis throughout those verses on light and darkness. Light is the scriptural symbol for life and peace and joy and holiness and darkness as the symbol for death and sin and secrecy and so on. This is all about how these wicked men then work in darkness. There are those who rebel against the light. They do not know its ways nor abide in its path. They, don't, they, they hate the light. They want nothing to do with the light. They love the darkness. The murderer rises with the light. And there are commentators who take that as in an ironic way. They arise with what they think is the light. They think of the night as the time of light, the time for doing their deeds. So they rise at night, their time, their daytime. He kills the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief. So he goes out like a thief at night, sneaking around, killing the poor and needy, hiding his eye, his wicked deeds from the hands, uh, eyes of men. That's the murderer. Verse 15, the adulterer. The eye of the adulterer waits for twilight, saying, no eye will see me, and he disguises his face. And then in verse 16, the robber, in the dark, they break into houses which they marked for themselves in the daytime. They do not know the light. And verse 17 then, again describing these, in, these men in a general way, the morning is the same to them as the shadow of death. That is, they think of morning the way we think of darkness. They're as terrified of the morning as we are of the darkness of the nighttime. The last line of verse 17, I think we have a very um, unfortunate translation here in the New King James, and you have uh, a bunch of inserted words there. Look at all the words in italics there. They, um, some of the other translations have things like this. For the morning is the same to them as the shadow of death, the first part of the verse, when he recognizes the shadow of death. Or by the ESV, for he is the friend of the shadow of death. The wicked man loves the darkness, loves the shadow of death. Is the main point. So that's Job's description of these wicked men. And then we come to, I think, the most difficult 
section in these three chapters, verses 18 to 25. And you can see that difficulty if you look at the translations. The New King James inserts the words should and would in there. Do you see that in verse 18? And then again in verse 20, they should be swift on the face of the waters. Their portion should be cursed in the earth so that no one would turn into the way of their vineyards. And 20, the womb should forget him. The worm should feed sweetly on him. He should be remembered no more. And wickedness should be broken like a tree. Job is saying this is what should happen to the wicked. And the implication is it doesn't happen. But if you look at the uh, ESV, then you'll see that at the beginning of verse 18, the ESV inserts the words, you say. And so the ESV takes this as Job quoting his friends about the judgment of God on the wicked. You say they will be swift on the face of the waters. That is, they'll uh, be swept away as quickly as a twig on the face of a flood. Their portion will be cursed in the earth. No one will turn into the way of their vineyards. As drought and heat consume the snow water, so the grave consumes those who have sinned. The womb will forget him, the worm will feed sweetly on him, he will be remembered no more, and wickedness will be broken like a tree. So this is what the friends say, according to Job. He prays on the barren, who do not bear and does no good for the widow, You say he's going to be judged, but, verses 22 and following, what God actually does, and listen to the difference here between the New King James and the ESV. Yet God prolongs the life of the mighty by his power, instead of God draws away the mighty with his power. They rise up when they despair of life, Instead of he rises up, but no man is sure of life. See how the meaning is almost 180 degrees different. He gives them security and they are supported and his eyes are upon their ways. That comes out pretty much the same. They are exalted for a little while, then they are gone. They are brought low. They are taken out of the way like all others. They dry out like the heads of grain. And here, again, the translations are very similar. And the idea is they live like other men in the world. They perish, die like other men. They're brought low, but just like other men. They're cut off as quickly and as easily as the heads of grain. There are no pangs in their death. Now, whatever we do, I think, with verses 18 to 21, I think... Verses uh, 22 to 24, we should take in the sense that the ESV has taken them. Job is here saying, this is what God really does with the wicked. And in verse 25, then, now if it is not so, who will prove me a liar and make my speech worth nothing? So in chapter 23, Job says, I would like to present my case to God. I know if I could present my case to God, he would hear me, but I can't find him. And ultimately, even if I could find him, I would be so terrified that I would not be able to do anything. 
And in chapter 24, he says to Elipaz, you say that God cuts down the oppressors of the poor and sweeps them away as with a flood. Well, I say the opposite. God does not charge them with wrong. He prolongs their lives and he makes their deaths easy. If it is not so, who will prove me a liar and make my speech worth nothing? So, here we're getting very close to the end of the interchanges between Job and his friends. And nothing has really changed, has it? The friends are still persuaded that Job has sinned. They're making now specific accusations of sin. You've oppressed the poor. Eliphaz, in fact, makes explicit what Zophar had implied in chapter 21. They keep on telling Job, you need to repent, you need to return to the Almighty. You need to acknowledge your sins, and God will bless you if you do. And Job keeps on insisting on his righteousness and also saying, you're just all wet. You don't know what you're talking about when you say God judges the wicked. He doesn't. He doesn't charge them with wrong. He makes their lives easy and prosperous and their deaths without pang. There's been really no movement on either side through all this long argument between Job and his friends. And that really, I think, is why ultimately Job wants to present his case to God. He says, I don't want you as my judges. I don't need you as my judges. Let God be my judge. Let me bring my case to God. And let him decide whether to vindicate me or not. May God bless us with his word.